0: Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. The following is an interview with Kurt Newton. Kurt is the director of the MIT OpenCourseWare platform, one of the best-known and respected open education platforms. In this interview, we discuss Kurt's background, and how we came to MIT, the Open Courseware platform, and the impact it's had on the world, and the future of open education. And welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. It's my great pleasure to introduce our interviewee today, Kurt Newton, who is the director of MIT's OpenCourseWare. Welcome, Kurt.
1: Thank you. It's uh, really great to be with you all. Uh, looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for taking your time out. Um, in the, in the previous episodes, uh, Chris and I have discussed a lot of edtech tech um, technologies, kind of some of the trends. But one of the reoccurring themes has been open education, OER. So I, I know you and I met because you attended a conference session I did, and I thought there's no better person to talk to than the director of probably the most famous open courseware platform. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here today. And I was, I was hoping if you could, if you would be so kind as to start to tell our audience uh, just a little bit about your, yourself, uh, professional and personal background and how long you've been involved with MIT OCW. Sure. Thanks,
1: Eric. Um, yeah, I joined MIT open courseware in 2004 and that was, um, about three years after its announcement, maybe eighteen months after it had really launched out in the world, um, this is my first and only higher ed job. Uh, my My original schooling was in electrical engineering. I started off thinking I wanted to like make great audio systems. and you know that didn't actually pan out, uh, but I worked for over a decade as a optical network uh, systems engineer at. At Bell Labs, and went over to a startup, and uh, in around year 2000, um, you know that whole industry kind of went upside down, and I decided I wanted to make a big change, and I was drawn towards education in general as, as a place I wanted to move into, but I was really starting from from square one, and after um, um, experimenting a little bit with maybe I'd be a classroom teacher, like middle school science, and. Wow, doing a thing, and it's probably going to change the nature of our institutions and the way education happens. What should we do about it? And there was, uh, you know, a lot of people who are looking at, know, for-profit schools, you know, creating um, dot-com versions of of the university because that seemed to be the thing, and everybody was jumping in and trying to figure out how to monetize what was going on. MIT, um, you know, in Classic form for the way the institute ran, um, pulled together a, a very high-powered task force of faculty and worked with uh, the consultant Booz Allen Hamilton. Did like really intensive business case studies and came back with an answer that was like, this is a really challenging and um, you know very early stage space. And our recommendation is don't jump into that. It's likely to be be a huge diversion, especially for a place like MIT, which is so kind of intensive in the the, the face-to-face interaction you know that goes on, especially in the, in the undergraduate education, but also like the research, you know, hands-on research things that are going on. This doesn't really doesn't really seem to make sense. And they could have left it at that, but they said, but you know what would be really amazing is to use the power of the internet which is just like sharing this content far and wide and harnessing also what was going on in the open like software movement um to basically give the teaching materials away under a, under an open license and it was you know it was audacious you know it was a, it was a bit radical you know caught people off guard and the, the president at MIT at that time Chuck Vest um, Kind of recognized right away what a uh, what a great opportunity this could be, um, and so they were pretty quickly able to um, garner widespread faculty support in the interest of, of of a couple of foundations, the Hewlett Foundation and the Mellon Foundation, to jump in and and help get this thing off the ground. And lo and behold, uh, I'd say you know their wildest expectations were realized and then some. Um, some of the origin story is, is actually documented in um, in some papers and books that have been released over the years, and you kind of look back and the the narrative, you know, the things that people were worried about and the predictions they were making. Many of the predictions came true, and the things people were worried about, as what's going to happen to education when it goes online, those are still the same things we're we're wrestling with. Some of them are still with us. It's it's uh, it's really interesting. You know, I think the the original conception of open courseware was probably the majority of the users would be other educators, right? Who's going to use syllabus and you know detailed lecture notes from from MIT? It's basically educators and enrolled students, and it, I think it's caught everyone off guard how much hunger and curiosity there is just from the world at large for this knowledge, and you know. At times, you know, our estimate is over half of the traffic that comes to OpenCourseWare is just from curious, independent learners. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that's like really striking. I think it surprised all the people who were kicking this off originally. And uh, it's opened up all kinds of opportunities in the open education resources space, which uh, I bet we'll get into a little bit more in the conversation.
0: It's interesting that, uh, to me that you talk about the same uh questions coming up so it's almost especially with the pandemic it's almost come full circle but that's like a force into online almost It's like a force to social experiment but do you uh, so I had a couple of questions the first one is of just follow-ups on that the first is do you think that MIT OpenCourseWare really advanced the MIT brand I mean I I remember I know of MIT because I have probably read at least all of the big books by Noam Chomsky and some other fairly well-known academics who worked at MIT, but in terms of a, a different, really a different generation. Um, do you think that that really did it a lot for its brand or changed its brand? Um, I think
1: the launch of, uh, I think that open courseware has certainly enhanced the MIT brand. Um, and it's, it's actually deeply in keeping with kind of the mission of the place. Um, apparently um, so MIT was launched in, I believe, 1865, which just you know, had the 150th anniversary. And one of the first things that the university did was it gave free night classes, right? So there's this like kind of radical openness and orientation out into the community, um, which was, you know, which was not really happening at the time. And, and you can, you can draw all the way back to the, to that origin of, of MIT and see all of these things, um, you know, with this kind of open orientation, so it's it's consistent, you know, with the brand. Uh, but there's no question it's also, you know, made it made it more visible. Uh, when I talk to people from the institute who do a lot of international outreach, uh, they say that uh, OpenCourseWare is one of the things that that's raised most often when they're just talking with people out in the world. So it's pretty powerful.
0: One thing you said really struck me, which is, and we can we'll talk a little bit more because I have some questions about the the data and stuff moving on. But uh, just curious learners. So uh, Chris and I had an observation. We had a one of our early episodes uh, was called the attention span debate, because of course in online learning there's the rule of thumb of you know keep your videos five minutes, twelve minutes max. People don't have the attention span. But in the age of uh, Podcasts, The Joe Rogan podcast has four-hour interviews, which are really interesting. Uh, Some of the lectures at MIT OpenCourseWare are are really long. Uh, There's an example I want to highlight later uh, of a speaker that I really like. But do you think that that attention span argument can be challenged?
1: Absolutely. You know, I do think there's something to it. You know, and even our most interesting 90-minute lecture videos, there's a tremendous sort of taper off after the first few minutes, right? Um, but enough people are watching all the way through to the end that you know we're having really substantial impact. Um, you know, I. Uh, I think the power of the podcast medium is that people can kind of carry it around with them and multitask a little bit and wash dishes or or what have you, and continue to engage with it. You know, I think video is, is a little more challenged in that way, but I think, I think the attention span is not this monolithic thing. And you know, what we've seen with the engagement with OCW and through our YouTube channel, uh, there's definitely a hunger for people who are willing to like, strap in and go through 90-minute videos and get a lot from it.
0: Yeah, it, it it's kind of my suspicion, but I wanted to hear it from you because I know I've had lots of students who've uh, found great supplementary material through MIT and have come to me during librarian student appointments and said, I learned this before I come to talk to you, but now I want to find citations to follow up on it. And it's always struck me how engaged people c- can be with uh, it's kind of this uh, serendipitous discovery. I, I we're going to, I, I've probably segued enough as I could probably ask indefinite uh, follow-up questions, but I'll, I'll move on to what, some of the things we posted, which is just for our listeners, um, because it's been around for so long, how is the current MIT OpenCourseWare built?
1: Like what's it, what's it running on?
0: What's under yeah, the I'm, hood cu- I'm curious there? what its platform yeah. is. I mean, We I'm familiar with library websites. I manage uh, I'm used to like open journal systems managing instances like that But I'm kind of curious what what MIT OpenCourseWare is built on.
1: Yeah, well those who are uh, who are plugged into like the uh, content management system world uh, May be surprised to learn, you know that we're running on a really old heavily customized uh, clone three Content management wow. system. Yeah, it's not even really supported out there, and so we are, uh, as they say in Boston, wicked overdue for an update. <laughs> and we're working. We're working hard on one. I think we'll talk a little bit later about um, the, the the next generation OCW program, which which builds on. But...
0: Welcome to EdTech Examined. A series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. The following is an interview with Kurt Newton. Kurt is the director of the MIT OpenCourseWare platform, one of the best known and respected open education platforms. In this interview, we discuss Kurt's background and how he came to MIT, the open Courseware platform and the impact it's had on the world, and the future of open education. And welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. It's my great pleasure to introduce our interviewee today, Kurt Newton, who is the director of MIT's OpenCourseWare. Welcome, Kurt.
1: Thank you. It's uh, really great to be with you all. Uh, looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for taking your time out. Um, in, the, in the previous episodes, uh, Chris and I have discussed a lot of Edtech tech um, technologies, kind of some of the trends, but one of the reoccurring themes has been open education OER. So I, I know you and I met because you attended a conference session I did, and I thought there's no better person to talk to than the director of probably the most famous open courseware platform. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here today. And I was I was hoping if you could, if you'd be so kind as to start to tell our audience uh, just a little bit about your yourself, uh, professional and personal background, and how long you've been involved with MIT OCW.
1: Sure, thanks, Eric. Um, yeah, I joined MIT OpenCourseWare in 2004, and that was um, about three years after its announcement, maybe 18 months after it had really launched out in the world. Um, this is my first and only higher ed job. Uh, my my original schooling was in electrical engineering. I started off thinking I wanted to like make great audio systems, and you know that didn't actually pan out. Uh, but I worked for over a decade as a optical network uh, systems engineer at at Bell Labs, and went over to a startup. And uh, in around year two thousand, um, you know that whole industry of went upside down, and I decided I wanted to make a big change. And I was drawn towards education in general as as a place I wanted to move into, but I was really starting from from square one. And after um, um, experimenting a little bit with maybe I'd be a classroom teacher, like middle school science, and wow, such respect for the people who pull that off day after day after day. It's like this. This isn't really a great fit for me, but there's maybe some other things I can do. So I was was bouncing around for a while, doing some freelance writing and technology review, which is a magazine put out by MIT. Um, was one of my favorite clients. They were really easy to work with. I was doing a couple stories around campus, and that was around the time MIT OpenCourseWare was launched. And I thought, wow, oh, this is really exciting. This is like audacious and brilliant. Um, editor, I forget their name editor. Could I write a story about this? No, we've actually got one of our staff writers working on it, but thanks for, thanks for asking anyway. Um, and I just thought open was so amazing that, um, I decided I was done with the freelance life and like needed a job again, parent of two young kids. Uh, and I was lucky enough to just be in the right place at the right time and, and got hired. And, uh, It's been, a uh, you know, an incredible, an incredible journey, uh, with that program. You know, I, I don't think I realized quite what I was getting into at the time. I just knew it looked, it looked really exciting. I wanted to do it. And I've been the director of the program for, um, about two and a half years now. Uh, So here we are. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're, you're pretty famous among the, uh, the OER Courseware crowd. Your name comes up a lot at the conferences as well as MIT's platform. And you have a, if I, I did a little bit of research, you have a jazz drumming background, if I'm not mistaken, right?
1: I do. Uh, after working as, uh, as an engineer for about five years, I was also uh, getting really into playing drums and uh, took a little leave of absence, went to conservatory, um, and then came back and uh, sort of playing multiple multiple uh threads through my life. Yeah. I always feel like I'm living at least two lives at some point.
0: <laughs> that is super cool. Well as a as a I'm not a drummer, but as a, a fellow uh music enthusiast, I'm a guitarist and uh someone who loves jazz fusion and stuff. I thought that was pretty amazing. I didn't know that until I did some background research.
1: All right, I'm outed.
0: <laughs> You're outed. or we can we can always edit that too. That's not a problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's good. It's good. Uh, so, um, you know, beyond the, your background, uh, uh, we wanted to just get into some specific questions regarding MIT's OpenCourseWare platform. And so uh, if you want to just uh, go through and just tell our listeners a, a little bit more about the program, um, how it started, what led to its inception.
1: So OpenCourseWare is a um is a free and open sharing of materials from the MIT classroom. We're taking the contributions of, of the syllabus and the lecture notes, you know, videos if we can get them, and problem sets and the like, straight from the classroom and sharing them in the most efficient, copyright-cleared way we can with the world. Um, it's, it's not like, purpose-built for the online audience, uh, although over the last few years, Certainly, those like online technologies, learning technologies, happen to be making their way back into the classroom. So, you know, throughout its its life and and ongoing, OCW is really just kind of a reflection of the teaching that goes on at MIT. And uh, you know, we try to reflect the entire curriculum. So, with about 2,500 courses on the on the collection right now, um, you know, we've got stuff from every department and most topics represented in, in many different ways as you go kind of from introductory undergrad all the way up through graduate. Um, well, OCW is uh, at MIT is approaching its 20th anniversary, and we've actually uh, been reflecting on on uh, you know kind of the story arc of of how it was created and what's gone on. Um, this is a great time to be having this conversation because these things are very uh, fresh and on on the mind here. Um, OpenCourseWare at MIT grew out of a conversation that was happening at MIT, and I think also a lot of other uh, universities around that time, around the year 2000. You know, this recognition that, boy, this internet is really like becoming a thing, and it's probably going to change the nature of our institutions and the way education happens. What should we do about it? And there was uh, you know, a lot of people who are looking at, I don't know, for profit schools, you know, creating um, dot-com versions of, of the university, because that seemed to be the thing. And everybody was jumping in and trying to figure out how to monetize what was going on. MIT, um, you know, in cl- classic form for the way the institute ran, um, pulled together a, a very high-powered task force of faculty and worked with uh, the consultant Booz Allen Hamilton, did like really intensive business case studies, and came back with an answer that was like, this is a really challenging and um, you know very early stage space, and our recommendation is don't jump into that. It's likely to be be a huge diversion, especially for a place like MIT, which is so kind of intensive in the the face to face interaction you know that goes on, especially in the in undergraduate education, but also like the research you know, hands-on research things that are going on. This doesn't really, doesn't really seem to make sense. And they could have left it at that, but they said, but you know what would be really amazing is to use the power of the internet, which is just like sharing this content far and wide and harnessing also what was going on in the open like software movement um, to basically give the teaching materials away under a, under an open license. And it was, you know, it was, Audacious, you know, it was a, it was a bit radical, you know, caught people off guard, and the, the president of MIT at that time, Chuck Vest, um, kind of recognized right away what a uh, what a great opportunity this could be, um, and so they were pretty quickly able to um, garner widespread faculty support in the interest of, of of a couple of foundations, the Hewlett Foundation and the Mellon Foundation, to jump in and and help get this thing off the ground and. Lo and behold, uh, I'd say you know their wildest expectations were realized and then some. Um, some of the origin story is, is actually documented in um, in some papers and books that have been released over the years, and you kind of look back and the, the narrative, you know, the things that people were worried about and the predictions they were making. Many of the predictions came true and the things people were worried about as what's going to happen to education when it goes online, those are still the same things we're we're wrestling with. Some of them are still with us. It's it's uh it's really interesting. You know, I think the the original conception of open courseware was probably the majority of the users would be other educators, right? Who's gonna use syllabus and you know detailed lecture notes from, from MIT? It's basically educators and enrolled students and it, I think it's caught everyone off guard how much hunger and curiosity there is just from the world at large for this knowledge. And, you know, at times, you know, our estimate is over half of the traffic that comes to OpenCourseWare is just from curious, independent learners. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that's like really striking. I think it surprised all the people who were kicking this off originally And uh, it's opened up all kinds of opportunities in the open education resources space, which uh, I bet we'll get into a little bit more in the conversation.
0: It's interesting uh, to me that you talk about the same uh, questions coming up. So it's almost, especially with the pandemic, it's almost come full circle, but that's like a force into online almost. It's like a force to social experiment. But do you, uh, so I had a couple of questions. The first one is of just follow-ups on that. The first is, do you, think that MIT OpenCourseWare really advanced the MIT brand? I mean, I, I remember, I know of MIT because I have probably read at least all of the big books by Noam Chomsky and some other fairly well-known academics who worked at MIT, but in terms of a, a different, really a different generation, um, do you think that that really did it a lot for its brand or changed its brand?
1: Um, I think the launch of, uh, I think that open courseware has certainly enhanced the MIT brand, um, and it's it's actually deeply in keeping with kind of the mission of the place. Um, apparently, um, so MIT was launched in I believe 1865. which so just you know had the 150th anniversary, and one of the first things that the university did was it gave free night classes, right? So there's this like kind of radical openness and orientation out into the community. Um, which was you know which was not really happening at the time and and you can you can draw all the way back to the to that origin of of MIT and see all of these things um, you know with this kind of open orientation so it's it's consistent you know with the brand, uh, but there's no question it's also I don't know made it made it more visible uh, when I talk to people from the Institute who do a lot of international outreach, uh, they say that uh, open courseware is one of the things that that's raised most often when they're just talking with people out in the world. So it's pretty powerful.
0: One thing you said really struck me, which is, and we can, we'll talk a little bit more because I have some questions about the, the data and stuff moving on, but, uh, just curious learners. So, uh, Chris and I had an observation. We had a, one of our early episodes uh, was called the attention span debate. Because, of course, in online learning, there's the rule of thumb of, you know, keep your videos five minutes, 12 minutes max. People don't have the attention span. But in the age of uh, podcasts, the Joe Rogan podcast has four hour interviews, which are really interesting. Uh, Some of the lectures at MIT OpenCourseWare are are really long. Uh, There's an example I want to highlight later of, of a speaker that I really like. But do you think that that attention span argument can be challenged?
1: Absolutely. You know, I do think there's something to it, you know, and even our most interesting 90 minute lecture videos, there's a tremendous sort of taper off after the first few minutes. Right. Um, but enough people are watching all the way through to the end that you know we're having really substantial impact. Um, you know, I. Uh, I think the power of the podcast medium is that people can kind of carry it around with them and multitask a little bit and wash dishes or or what have you and continue to engage with it. You know, I think video is is a little more challenged in that way, but I think, I think the attention span is not this monolithic thing. And you know, what we've seen with the engagement with OCW and through our YouTube channel, uh, there's definitely a hunger for people who are willing to like, strap in and go through 90-minute videos and get a lot from it.
0: Yeah, it's kind of my suspicion, but I wanted to hear it from you because I know I've had lots of students who've uh, found great supplementary material through MIT and have come to me during librarian student appointments and said, I learned this before I come to talk to you, but now I want to find citations to follow up on it. And it's always struck me how engaged people can be with uh, it's kind of this uh, serendipitous discovery I, I we're gonna i i've probably segued enough as i could probably ask indefinite uh follow-up questions but i'll i'll move on to what some of the things we posted which is just for our listeners um because it's been around for so long how is the current mit open courseware built
1: like what's it what's it running on what's under yeah, the I'm hood cu- i'm there? curious what its platform
0: yeah. is i mean we have, I, I'm familiar with library websites. I manage uh, I'm used to like open journal systems managing instances like that But I'm kind of curious what what MIT OpenCourseWare is built on.
1: Yeah, well those who are uh, who are plugged into like the uh, content management system world uh, may be surprised to learn, you know that we're running on a really old heavily customized uh, clone 3 content management wow. system. Yeah. It's not even really supported out there. And so we are, uh, as they say in Boston, wicked overdue for an update <laughs> and we're working, we're working hard on one. I think we'll talk a little bit later about, um, the, the, the next generation OCW program, which, which builds on, but there's a whole bunch more to it than that, but builds on a build us builds us on a, uh, on a, on a new platform, a new content management system. Mm-hmm. Um, when OCW first launched, um, there was, I think there was a a close look at some of the open source systems that were out there. And I know people, you know, looking at things like Sakai, uh, and, and other, other alternatives out there. Uh, I was not in the room, uh, in how those decisions were made. I can't really speak directly to it. Uh, I know, I know, I know the open source, you know, alternatives were given consideration. Um, but anyway, here we are, we're, uh, we're now, uh, you know, 10 years running on Poem 3, and it's amazing what we're able to make that thing do.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so, Kurt, um, uh, one of the things that we were wondering about was uh, what has been the biggest technical challenge in the development of MIT OCW?
1: Hmm. The biggest technical challenge. Um, I'm not sure that I can cite... One biggest one, you know, and I I don't want to—I don't want to get sort of, you know, pulled down too deep into the into the content management system that we're running with. Um, I would say there's things that have a technology component as well as a a sort of a you know human content you know like faculty component, and and these things kind of play off of each other. So, for instance, um, we know how important video is to our learners, right? And it's, it's such a, such a high impact medium to be getting this content from. Um, but video is just like, it's cumbersome to work with at scale, right? Um, it's, it's a lot easier to, uh, to publish a hundred courses per year when you're dealing with the print medium of syllabi and lecture, print lecture notes and so forth. So the being able to, to process video at scale and especially deal with the use of third party materials because we're clearing all this stuff to be shared under a creative commons license, to be able to, um, to scrub it and edit it, um, in an appropriate way, respecting copyright. Um, it's just, it's just slow and hard and and takes, takes a long time. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's been a situation kind of throughout OCW. Um, I'd say a, a, a situation that um, I look to be evolving and, and, and changing over the next few years um, has to do with um, easily adapted materials. So, if you come to MIT OpenCourseWare today, you'll see a lot of HTML pages with some embedded videos and a lot of PDFs in there, and we, we went big on PDFs early on because we wanted a, a, a sort of uniform uh, method of presentation that treated math in a reliable way, that could be used in a really resilient way by learners independent of whatever platform they were running on. And we also know at the same time that people really want you know content that they can easily adapt. And PDFs are not the easiest things to work with, you know. Um, Things are shifting there, right? Um, we're actually uh, going to be kicking off some pilot programs where we'll be, sh- you know, uh, sharing more native source files from our courses. PDFs are getting easier to work with. You know, Adobe gives you free stuff in the cloud that you can upload things and convert to other documents. They're not perfect, you know. Uh, uh, math vector symbols and other things still come out a little wonky, but it gets you a lot better than it used to. Um, their Adobe liquid mode for reading PDFs on your phone is a, uh, is a really cool development that we're excited about as well. Um, so I'd say that that sort of like presentation, uh, presentation technology for like kind of math intensive image, heavy, uh, stuff that works for the whole world is, is another one that's, uh, that's really key. Um, yeah, I'll stop there.
2: And what do you think of Kurt, uh, like the human element? Like, how do you entice the, the MIT faculty to contribute to the OCW platform?
1: Yeah. Getting, getting faculty to contribute, um, to me has, has been one of the, the most interesting, fun parts of the job. You know, um, when I joined and for, I don't know, the next, I don't know, six, seven years probably, um, pretty substantial amount of our time was in working with faculty to get them comfortable with the idea of, of sharing their content in this way, you know? Um, and you know, there's, there's always, you know, at a place like MIT, there's always some people who are like early adopters and are going to jump in and worry about <laughs> starting out the details, uh, as we go, but other people are more kind of, you know, careful about it. And, um, and so it really is, it, it is really a, a deeply kind of human enterprise and every every faculty and every course is different so you you got to understand like what what makes this course tick and what what is the objective of the faculty some people are you know they get intuitively and can foreground the the power of sharing their materials widely and they've set aside I might write a text textbook about this that I'll sell someday. Like set that stuff aside. Um, you know, some people are um, concerned about the the rapidly developing state of their courses. You know, this is a course I've only taught once or twice. It's still it's still in development. It's still evolving. You know, and so working with on a, on a uh, to build comfort that let's put what you've got out there. Because it's it's really great for what it is, and I think our users increasingly kind of understand that that's the spirit in which it's shared, and we'll come back to it and update it as you as you see fit, and uh, and get comfortable about that as well. Um, the more we worked with faculty, the more the the word of mouth, the kind of peer to peer influence started to happen, and you know faculty would hear directly from you know you know uh, just users who were so happy that they had shared this knowledge with them, and it continues to happen. Um, if I can, can share a, a very recent anecdote, um, over the past year, we've published a couple of courses, very, very rich video courses with um, the Sloan School of Management Professor Gary Gensler, who was just appointed, I'm not sure with the exact status of that appointment, the nomination, but he's in line to be the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission at in the United States you know, by President Biden. And uh, we published videos by him about uh, fintech, financial tech and and blockchain. He's a really busy guy. And he's still you know he's getting emails from from learners around the world and forwarding them to us and saying, "Oh, this is really cool, <laughs> right So the, uh, the you know just getting that sort of feedback from the world, from users that they really appreciate that helps, helps convince faculty that this is worth doing. I would, yeah. One other, one other thing I'd like to say on that, if I could, um, this is, this is a recognition that, uh, MIT, MIT has perhaps a different situation than faculty at many schools. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're incredibly busy in, in kind of the research side of things, but, there's no question that they've got, you know, also a lot of support along with that, that being really busy. And I know, I know for many faculty at many schools, you know, who are, you know, just so incredibly, you know, uh, stretched thin, you know, to be asked to do yet another thing to like, think about how I, how I share materials out the world, out with the world can be, it can be a big ask. Right. And if, if those faculty can be given some degree of support, so like, the OCW staff, you know, we have currently a staff of roughly 15 people, depending on how you count it, doing different kinds of jobs, right? There aren't many, I know, I know there aren't many schools that can bring that kind of staff support to it, um, but knowing that the faculty have, you know, have help, right, is I think a huge part of it as well. And if it was all up to the faculty to produce this stuff on their own, we wouldn't have gotten there
2: you know in terms of the the courses like you mentioned this fintech and blockchain um what appears to be the most in demand courses based on the usage and uh, yeah. do you have any idea of uh, what the largest user groups might be
1: yeah um we 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 like to pay attention to uh uh data about our users as best we can you know we're we're a little bit limited in that OCW has no login or registration so What we know about our users comes from, you know, occasional surveys, um, which have a a little bit of a self-selection bias, you know, only the people who are willing to answer will, will give us the data, uh, and you know, web analytics, um, without question, the most popular courses are introductory programming and the kind of, um, Core gen ed uh, science and math classes that people might take in their first year or two of college. And so, um, learning to program with Python and computational thinking, uh, the first couple of calculus classes, the first couple of physics classes, uh, and linear algebra uh, from one of our star faculty, Gil Strang, are are perennial, you know, we have a, we have a page on the OCW site, you know, of, of the twenty most popular courses every month. It doesn't really change much, uh, but every so often we'll see, um, uh, you know, introductory microeconomics, you know, crack in there. Um, the introductory psychology course occasionally gets in there. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, next month the uh, the blockchain course <laughs> gets in there as well. You know, sometimes we get those those kind of transients. Um, there's a, there's a very uneven distribution of the attention that courses get, you know, with, with 2,500 courses, you know, um, there's a, there's a very long tail, right? Uh, but we, we feel like even a course that's only visited a few times per day, you know, every one of those visits can have a huge impact out in the world. And it's really cool that, you know, some of our courses get thousands of visits every day. And it's also wonderful that we've got really esoteric things, uh, you know, that are just reaching one or two people per day. It's all it's all good. Another, if I can, another really interesting aspect on the like who the users are. um, So we started sharing our videos on YouTube um, about it was around 2010, and originally that was just you know, it was, it was a free platform on which to put the videos that we can embed back on the site. You know, um, we did not realize, you know, I'll use the word juggernaut here. The YouTube user base is, you know, is now I think one of the, if not the prime way for reaching sort of general curious learners out in the world. And we get more sort of minutes of engagement every month now on those videos than we do from the website. Um, so there's there's something about having the content out where people are looking and sort of curious that's that's really contributed to I think shifting where the users are coming
0: from. I'm kind of thinking now about uh, your user groups and everything that you've put together and and that that's a fascinating history to see the arc of how it's how it's grown. But with the with the pandemic, uh has that changed or Altered the course of some of the strategic directions of OpenCourseWare moving forward, perhaps.
1: Yeah, um, there is no question that the pandemic and the the, the full on shift towards online learning with all of our class with all of the classes at MIT is shifting some things. You know, again, we're a reflection of the teaching at MIT. Uh, we are now inundated with with uh, Zoom videos, <laughs> right? From which to for, from which to work. Um, but we also have to be, we're, we're like really, um, really careful about student privacy, for instance. And when we record video in the classroom at MIT, we're very careful to set aside that if you don't want to appear in the video, you know, please sit outside of the cone that the camera is recording. Um, and we have other ways of sort of, you know, making sure that students who don't want to appear in there don't have to be, um, we absolutely do not want our documentation sharing of this stuff to in any way influence or chill the the, the student's experience in the classroom. That student experience in the classroom is uh, sacrosanct. Sacro, I don't know how you pronounce that. Sancrosanct? Sacrosanct?
0: Sacrosanct. Sacrosanct? <laughs> sacrosanct? I don't know yeah. how to say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so, you know, one of the shifts to the pandemic is the, the just... Sort of native digital online materials are are much richer suddenly, and I know things were moving in that way, but uh, it's suddenly accelerated, (laughs) and that's not gonna. I don't think that's gonna go back, right? You know. On the other hand, you know, sort of like, uh, kind of the use and impact out in the world, OCW saw a huge spike in traffic, March, April, May last, last spring, you know, we're, we're close to double, you know, our, our typical traffic for a while there, but things really kind of settled back down. And my, one of my takeaways on that is people had time over the summer, you know, to actually start producing online materials for their own classes. It's great. I think that's, that's a fantastic situation. I think what was going on in the first few months of the pandemic was people were scrambling, and we're so glad that we were able to be there for them. Um, but thanks, the party's <laughs> the party's over. You know, you can return back home and and kind of settle back in. That was good.
2: So, uh, Kurt, one of the things, uh, as uh, Eric mentioned, we did go through some of the reports that are on the MIT um, OCW website and. If you could just tell us a little bit more about the types of reports, and maybe specifically some of the monthly and annual reports, uh, some insights there.
1: Yeah, um, in the earliest in the earlier days of, of OCW, um, there was tremendous interest to just like get a get a read on who these people are, right? And why are, why are they using this stuff? This was all brand new. And so, um, we're doing fairly regular surveys to, to kind of get into the minds of the users. You know, we identified educators, students, and independent learners as, as like the three user types. And for each of them, you know, it, we, we really wanted to understand like, why were they coming to the site? Did they find what they were looking for? How were they using the materials? And Collecting both, you know, quantitative data as best as we can, but also the anecdotes, you know, you know, some, some kind of oral history richness that we could start to work from. Um, and that's, you know, that was, I think really important to just kind of understand what this thing was that was taking shape. You know, um, we have a, we have a better, you know, kind of better grip on the the nature of these, of the different user communities at this point. And it's not that they aren't evolving all the time, but, um, I think there's less of a need to like do really frequent surveys of that stuff. Um, We're investing more in just getting the content out there and and sharing it with people. So we're, you know, we're watching nowadays um, things like around the world, um, you know, what's what's the what's the sort of distribution of traffic geographically, and really exciting to see the United States quote losing market share, right? OCW, uh, over seventy percent of the traffic to the OCW website comes from outside the United States, which is just thrilling. You know, uh, it didn't used to be that. You know, it always used to get a, a good global uh, global audience, but it's it's definitely shifted in a more global audience in a glo- more global direction all the time. Um, you know, and watching watching similarly like the, the kind of YouTube uh, statistics and what. What videos are people engaging with, and are they referring from the um, from the videos back to the course website where they find all sorts of other materials? You know, those are those are things that we're paying attention to and making refinements. You know, because we want people to be able to experience the full richness of what we've got. Um, you know, uh, one of the takeaways from all those reports is that. While the the open education kind of ecosystem has just expanded so much, and there's there's you know every every year there's there's more types of content you know you know serving you know more specific types of users. The the traffic and the interest in OCW has you know has has stayed quite strong, quite steady. You know, um, I'd say up through about 2012 when MOOCs were announced. It was you know straight up you know just continuously up and up and up and up and up, and then I uh, don't know moocs came along and I think picked up understandably so you know a good amount of the the independent learner interest, uh, but by no means all of it you know OCW and the and the moocs are complementary, but it's um as we have more and more moocs out there and more online textbooks and Khan Academy and you know you name it you know the 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 traffic to OCW remains strong, and that's, a, I think, a, a really important thing that we're taking away from monitoring this data all the time.
0: I uh, I, th- I was going to ask, uh, what were your surprises from those reports? But I think you've kind of answered that. It's interesting that 70% of, of that traffic comes from outside the United States. And I noticed that India was, I think, the second largest individual country user, if I, if I remember, which was pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the, the strength of India as a, as a user community, um, the, the, the folks who are oriented in a sort of MIT-ish higher ed direction, you know, tend to be English, English literate, uh, English speakers, you know, and that, and that helps a lot. Um, you know, in the, I don't know, 2005 to 2010 range, there was a lot more activity uh, in translating English language MIT Open Courseware into other languages, I think, is a way to sort of prime that prime that situation. But we don't we don't see nearly as much of that translation activity because, again, it's like it's exciting to lose quote lose market share here. These schools are sharing their materials on their own, you know, as they've created, which is which is really what we want in the end. Um, so, yeah, that 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 kind of global that global landscape is is really interesting to watch.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciate you highlighting that. I mean, I've been watching or taking a look at the statistics for quite a few years of open courseware, and it's just really neat to see it change. One of the things, uh, in your annual reports, uh, I think you've done this on multiple occasions, but on the most recent one, uh, you've paid tribute to MIT faculty who've, who recently passed. So, uh, Herb Gross, uh, amazing instructor, I think some of the videos are from the fifties or the sixties. Um, and also Patrick Winston. Um, for listeners who aren't aware, Patrick winston uh, in was in computer science art, well, artificial intelligence, kind of a pioneer in the field, but has a video on how to speak publicly. Which he's famous for giving, which I have sent to many, many students I know who are terrified to uh, do an oral entrance exam for a graduate degree, or they're working on a capstone project. And I, I noticed that you you paid tribute to both of those faculty members in the last report. And that, so my question, as a result of that, is is that do you think that, in addition to being a learning platform, MIT Open Courseware is also kind of doubling as a historical archive? And was that kind of intended or an unintended consequence perhaps
1: um, I think it was always built in. It was not you know a, a top line benefit um, but you know in in some of our standards and practices, for instance you know we're we're we work with the MIT libraries on an archiving system, and we're attaching metadata to the courses and the resources so that so that they live on forever, right. You know, um, the, the case of Herb Gross is, 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 is a, is a, is a really interesting one I'd like to like touch on in a little bit more depth, you know, um, Herb was, was, um, he, he did teach at MIT. I believe he was like a senior lecturer, but he did this series of, uh, video series of, of, um, you know, ways, ways to understand calculus in a really like beautiful, direct, You know, very kind of human at the chalkboard way. They were recorded, I believe, in like the early 1970s. And Herb um, uh, was—he taught math at uh, I believe it was Bunker Hill Community College, and it was his experience of of teaching, I think, in that environment and his love of math that really informs the way that he teaches there. So those her gross videos are part of a collection of materials that at open Courseware we call supplemental resources because they don't come straight from the mit classroom you know classic ocw content is you know it's a reflection of the curriculum but you know we are occasionally blessed with you know people who you know reach out to us connect with us or we learn about who have an affiliation with mit and that's that's kind of all that of needs to be there. Uh, and if we think it's of use to our users, we're going to put it out, you know? So we, uh, we rescued these old videotapes and, uh, shared them with the world. And, uh, you know, Herb, you know, to the very end of his life was, uh, was engaging with people in his YouTube comments. Uh, if you, if you have an opportunity to, to, to kind of fly through those comments and, and see the interaction, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, her, the Patrick Winston, you know, taught one of our most popular uh, computer science courses as well, the artificial intelligence class. And so, having the record of how he taught that course, you know, at I think what will what will be seen to be a really fundamental period of years at MIT in the development of the field of 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 artificial intelligence, and then stand that up alongside his beloved one-hour January talk about how to speak you know, similarly, kind of live on forever. Those are uh, what we would call classics.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, one other thing we've talked about, Kurt, is, uh, you know, and, and now I guess it's time to chat about the next generation of the open where um, platform. Uh, but if you can tell us just a little bit what you're thinking, what uh, the new generation is going to look like and some of the details behind it.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I think I'll I'll talk about the next generation program in kind of uh, three themes or three pillars. Um, we've already talked a little bit about the about the platform. You know, I know it's been nice to know you Plone three, but we're moving on. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, we're, we're we're creating a new platform that will produce a much better, you know, kind of up-to-date user experience, you know, a a clean interface, uh, mobile responsive, because so many of the people we need to reach, you know, smartphone or phone might be the only digital device they've got. That's, that's going to be really key. And with, uh, with such an enormous collection of content, you know, um, the content discovery process, you know, the, the, the search tools and leading people to the right material, um, uh, is, is a thing we're also investing a, a, a lot in right now, and, and people will see, I think, uh, some some real steps forward on on that side of it as well. Um, there's a there's also a kind of internally focused towards the MIT faculty and the MIT community aspect of this as well. Um, that we uh, we want to do a better job of keeping the OCW collection. Up to date, you know, as a vibrant reflection of the rapidly evolving teaching at MIT. And so, you know, being able to accommodate some of the, say, new digital, digital learning technologies, uh, but even more importantly, just increase our throughput. You know, there's there's automated tools <laughs> that we're going to get to make use of that uh, should uh, should increase the uh, the pace of course publication that we're uh, we're very excited about um, and. You know, the outside world won't see that directly, but they'll see the result. Um, and I think the, the third the third theme has to do with how MIT OCW, you know, connects with this, this broader ecosystem, you know, that's, that's grown so much and has become so rich, you know. Um, OCW's mission, uh, you know, and we've stayed pretty true to it for our first 20 years, is really just about sharing as much material... You know, from from the classroom as we can. It's about giving access in the widest, most possible way, and that's that's taken us to some you know like amazing places. I think that we recognize there's also some really important things to do around uh, uh, improving educational equity, right? Getting the content more than the content, creating educational experiences that empower people who. Have have not had the same advantages is really really key and those are things that that we we can't nor we should be in some ways even try to do this ourselves it's really about uh, a, a kind of collaborative uh, orientation with the world you know we we are you know going to be committing ourselves to um, to working with people who are more firmly connected with particular uh, school communities and types of learners and working with them, you know, to, for instance, produce, um, you know, the right sort of adaptations, you know, um, to help have their voices be heard and merged within the content that sort of the source content that MIT has created, you know, and to the extent that we can maybe produce some like really successful, on ramps into into some of the the, the higher level you know more sophisticated content that we've got for people who are who want to get there right and just need you know a little a little leg up um, so recognizing that uh, collaborating with others on that on that sort of enterprise is, is really really important as a, sort of the third the third part of the program
0: it's interesting. collaboration, especially among the big platforms is i am actually starting to see more academic research, talk about kind of networks of open education, open education communities. And I like the way that you phrased it. It's not one institution can kind of do it its own. It's almost like a open courseware platform, regardless of the institution, whether it be MIT or TU Delft. one institution can only scale so far, and then they kind of have to work. What do you think the biggest challenges for oer adoption would be moving forward so are there any i guess key technologies or maybe maybe it's not technologies maybe it's key approaches that would be critical in solving that
1: yeah i I mean my response here i know i'm i'm kind of reporting what i'm hearing from the conversations at, at conferences for instance right i'm not trying to adopt oer Myself. I'm not living that experience. But what I hear from the people who are is um they need help finding it, you know. You know, there are some there's some disciplines that are richly represented, you know, but many others, it's not so easy to find. And so, you know, the the field of the OER librarian. I think is really exciting, you know, that that when schools are able to set up that kind of resource for their faculty and to be a guide, to kind of be familiar with how to find things and how to think about it, how to approach it, uh, seems to be a really key resource, a key investment to make. Um, you know, I think moving beyond that, you know, maybe on a technology front, I'm going to project out a few years here. Um, People are doing like incredible things on their under individual platforms, you know, uh, open textbook platforms where people can jump in and and produce derivative works and have it show up there. I think that's really cool, you know. Um, what I'm expecting to take shape over the next few years is kind of an unbundling of that into um, places where people can create, uh, you know, learning pathways, right? And grab some of this and some of that. And maybe the pathway is produced by, you know, some, you know, just interested third party who says, this is, you know, I'm not exactly like, you know, offering a degree, but if you want to work in this field, which, you know, which we're representing, this would be a, a really, you know, great series of things to learn about, to be able to pull the bits and pieces together in a way that, that hangs together and allows people to work with, um, I think will move us in a really good way. It's like the next step towards, you know, some, you know, ultimate, you know, ultimate future of just like, just like the totally empowered and fully supported learner uh, because what we're all trying to get to.
0: If I may ask to follow up on that, that's a really, it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, I had a colleague a while back who thought of it as kind of like a playlist. Um, so is that kind of what, if I may, is that kind of what you're getting at? Because I, I remember once I I took some online learning uh, through Team Treehouse, which is a paid for computer programming online learning platform. And they had kind of like these mini lessons and courses, but then they would build kind of exactly what you said, a learning pathway that pulled in because they had so much content to work with. They said, well, I'm sure somebody in their offices says, well, we we already have that made. We can pull that in to where it makes sense. And like you said, you could build your own path. You could almost build your own course, your own degree, or as long as it was scaffolded properly. Is that kind of a long term? Do you think that'll happen?
1: I I do think it's going to happen. You know, I I know that a lot of people are thinking about different aspects to it. I do think it's going to happen. I I can't predict in detail like what it's going to look like, you know, but... I, you know, I imagine a world where somebody has this idea of, you know, the, the, the sort of knowledge they want to get to, the set of skills they want to get to, right? And maybe that involves some math and some computer science early on, right? Somebody who looks at the OER landscape today is going to be overwhelmed trying to decide which of those early stage computer science and, and math classes to take, right? Given where I want to get to. Some will work better than others, right? So the ability to, you know, based on you know a, a desired destination, kind of figure out what, you know, what some of the better paths to start with would be good. I think that, and I, I like the I like the analogy of a playlist. I think that's that's a really useful, I don't know, sort of grounding point. I'd say the one of the things I'd be looking to beyond just to say a, an audio playlist is. There's the glue, the transition from, you know, one, one, <laughs> one song to the next, right? And the the sort of rationale and, the, and the, the processing that goes on as you transition from one to the next, um, there's some really vital things that happen in a, in a sort of formal educational setting when it's done well right now. And when you, when you have people operating outside of that formal educational setting, where's the, where's the glue come from the, the sort of like mentorship and, and helping people kind of understand the, the arc and the trajectory through that stuff. Um, that's a, I think it's a really important layer to be added. Uh, and I have no idea how it's going to come to be, but I, I look forward to it. I think it's going to be a, a, a wonderful thing.
2: So Kurt, uh, one thing that the, We've chatted about for the last little while is uh, especially with micro credentialing and uh, you know companies like Google partnering up with Coursera and you know having their own educational programs micro credentials uh do you think something like this is going to pose a challenge for the traditional higher educational institutions like mit
1: um I think that we there will be some challenges posed um I don't see them specifically challenging, you know, um, MIT per se. Um, you know, I think a lot of the micro credentials are, are fabulous as, um, places for people to get started. You know, uh, I know a number of young adults who are like coming out of high school and trying to figure out their path next. Right. And, uh, if I was that age right now, I don't know how I, like a traditional four-year college thing would feel to me right now. I might want to sample a little bit, you know, start with start with something here and then work for a while and see what that leads to, you know. Um, MIT is going to be fine. <laughs> I don't have any don't have any worries about that, you know. I think, uh, I think it will give people, you know, a much richer set of options. You know, I I do worry about you know the the broader higher ed landscape, which we know has some, you know, some real financial challenges that it's living through right now, and you know, the schools that don't have a, a big endowment and aren't research based, um, I do think it might, you know, it's it's going to pose a challenge to to some of those schools, and uh, it's it's a it's a hard disruption. Yeah, I I don't know what else to say about it.
2: You know it's it's funny you mentioned that there's this one professor uh, he's at NYU uh, Scott Galloway and uh, he actually has uh, proposed that a lot of these big tech companies are going to go and partner up with universities and uh, specifically he said that MIT and Google would partner uh, Microsoft Berkeley Apple Stanford so on and so forth what do you what do you think of his comments
1: It's happening yeah i've had some of those conversations with you know with big companies who are who are interested in setting up you know you know programs to basically increase their you know their their pool you know and and it comes in part from a, i think a really good place which is look we want to we want to improve the the sort of richness and the diversity of our workforce right and there are substantial communities that aren't being served as they need to be by higher ed as it exists right now. So we're just going to, we're going to, you know, you know, take an end run here for a little bit and see, see what we can do to just set it up directly. Um, I don't know how it's going to pan out, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's I think it's a, it's a real force to be, to be watching for.
0: And this is probably a good segue, Kurt, but is there other, um, could be left field, but ed tech or other technological and invat- advancements that you're most excited about for online learning. And that, that could be as far as the horizon could see, it doesn't have to be immediate. Yeah. Um,
1: one thing I'm really excited about, this is a little bit, a little bit outside, you know, the, the, the course space specifically, but, but online, you know, this is the thing I hope will stick and and really develop out of the pandemic is we've, we've decided it's it's actually okay in some ways to not have to travel to get together with people, right? So the fact that, Eric, I met you in this conference, that was not a conference I would've traveled to, right? It was highly likely I would've traveled to it.
0: I wouldn't but, do it either. Yeah, <laughs> but because it was
1: online, that made that possible, right? And, you know, you know, bless their hearts, the people who are scrambling to try to figure out how to do all these things online, you know, people are really pulling out the stops and I think, you know, they're doing great work and it's, and it's clunky and it doesn't always work that great, but we're all, you know, we're all approaching it in the spirit of experimentation. I really look forward, you know, over the next bunch of years, figuring out ways to, to gather, you know, in a virtual space without having to get together physically and have the kind of direct, um, Kind of flexible, nimble interactions that we would if we bumped into people, you know, in the hallway at a conference, I know, uh, and just simply, you know, dislodging ourselves from, ah, it's never going to work. I got to, I got to fly to get there. Um, I think has, has spurred stuff now starting to take shape. I, I'm, I'm confident, you know, that, that we're going to be in a better place in five years. And as a, uh, as a climate change activist, I couldn't be happier. <laughs> You know, but trying to not fly.
0: Well, yeah, you make a great point about that. I mean, it certainly has an, a, a measurable impact on um, the carbon footprint. It's interesting. Uh, we actually did an interview. I, I, well, I think I sent you the example. Uh, there's someone at Mount Royal University who's interested in, again, what is the future of online learning and distance? And he's investigating the virtual space using alt space VR, which is, I've attended a few events now in, in VR, which was kind of a strange outer body experience at first, but it works surprisingly well. And especially when your classroom is the international space station or something that you would never be able to do. Uh, it's amazing how jazz people get, you know, when they're not VR bombing you, which does happen, which is very interesting, uh, in a, in a virtual space. So I, I agree. I think that's going to that's really gonna set off um, all sorts of innovations. Now, Kurt, there's a few things that I know that you're working on at MIT. There's some projects like the podcast um, and some things around the 20th anniversary of OpenCourseWare. Uh, rather than ask more questions or throw more questions at you, I just wanted to know if there's things that you'd like to highlight for the listeners or some of the other things that you're working on.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, one thing I'd like to highlight is is a is a program that we kicked off. Um, my sense of time's not great, you know. This program we kicked off around, say, 2014, I think, uh, called OCW Educator, and this was uh, a brainstorm of a few of our of our most engaged faculty, who said, "Look, OCW has been sharing the what MIT teaches all these years, and that's and that's great, but we think there's there could actually be value, and also." sharing the how and why teachers make the choices they do to complement the what. Um, So, the OCW Educator Program, you know, set off to figure out some way to do that. And we've kind of settled on on an approach of interviewing faculty, you know, uh, and basically finding out what makes them, what What made this course tick for them? What worked? What were their what were their pedagogical choices? Why did they make those choices? What would they do differently next time? And sharing that along with the course material uh, as a way to kind of enrich it, in particular for the educator audience. Um, Out of those interviews um, last year, you know, sprung the podcast, which which we call Chalk Radio, and it features you know audio recordings of those interviews, you know, sometimes we just transcribe them into a print form on the website, but also producing them, you know, with our, uh, with our host, Dr. Sarah Hansen, kind of in conversation. And I think in, in the podcast form, our, our sense is that that, while it's of interest to educators, it's also interest to just anybody who, you know, is connected to a course or a topic, you know, um, there's no question that if you if you're trying to learn some course materials, and you get to have you know some sort of connection with the faculty, even if it's just like listening to to their voice and recording, that can help a lot. Um, we're you know we continue to see that work as, as again still sort of evolving and uh, you know continuing to be experimental. Our hope is that 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 can spur some, you know, some conversations with faculty who are also working in OER and other schools and start building a, a you know, uh, a kind of community practice dialogue. Um, you know, maybe we can drop this into, uh, into gatherings that happen at some conferences or something like that. And let's, you know, let's talk about, for instance, um, you know, what practices people are using for, um, For active learning in a particular type of discipline, you know, you know, you know, for, you know, how to engage people who are taking their, their gen ed uh, physics class, right? How do you use active learning to like spur that along? So I, I think that's a really important piece of the ocw program right now and will continue
0: to be one uh for listeners uh i especially those who are interested in education i highly recommend checking out chalk radio it is beautifully produced as well so i'm using it as a not just to learn from how people teach but as a example of good production
1: no oh, thank you for saying so we're we're really lucky uh to be able to work with the producer dave leshansky uh who i had the pleasure to work with on a climate podcast a few years ago and. Uh, He's the guy, you know, we feel really, really blessed with that. And uh, my colleague, Brett Pachi uh, also, uh, on our, on our, team, uh, works very closely on that and they, uh, they, uh, they're a great team. Yeah.
0: So now it's probably a good time to transition to our rapid, uh, fire question segment. Uh, so for people who haven't heard this before, this is very, very, uh, a series of very, very lighthearted questions, uh, nothing political, uh, personal preferences kind of stuff uh, that we end all of our uh, interviews with uh, thanks to uh, Chris Hans who kind of invented this segment for us. So we, we adjust these questions every time. We try to tailor them to the person we're interviewing. Uh, sometimes we, we hit the mark, sometimes we don't, but we have a few here. So are you ready, Kurt?
1: I am ready. The pressure is on. Okay.
0: Okay, so uh, these could be one-word answers, two-word, they don't have to be long, but uh, kind of the first thing that pops into your mind. So uh, coffee or tea? Coffee, definitely. Mac or PC? Mac. Oh man, two for two. iPhone <laughs> or Android? Yeah.
1: Uh, iPhone also. I want technology to just works.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, We we definitely agree here. Okay, standing or sitting desk?
1: I uh, love my standing desk, although I'm sitting at the moment.
0: Star Wars or Star Trek?
1: Uh, the older I get, the more I love Star Trek. The the sort of camp and foresight that they wove together in it, love it.
0: Yeah. Favorite car?
1: Ooh, I love my uh, Chevy Bolt EV. It's quiet nice. and zippy, and yeah, I I, I, I actually enjoy driving it. Nah, I'm, I I can't afford that.
0: <laughs> Ebook or paper?
1: Oh, that depends on what the thing is. Sometimes there are books that I want to be able to share and hand around to people, and it's hard to do that with Kindle. <laughs> so occasionally, occasionally, paper books. Uh, But I do love the convenience of the Kindle.
0: Kindle's pretty awesome. Uh, Favorite open source technology?
1: Mm. Technology.
0: Uh,
1: You know, Wikipedia. (laughs) The wiki. Does that
0: count? Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) The wiki. Yeah. I call it the the book of knowledge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I got to say, you know. We share a 20th anniversary with the launch of Wikipedia and Creative Commons. So brethren.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's pretty awesome. Um, Synchronous, asynchronous, or hybrid? What's your learning style preference?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, As asynchronous as I can make it, but definitely a a little synchronous in there to like connect with my co-learners occasionally. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Favorite web browser?
1: Hmm, I don't use it very much, but I enjoy Brave. Zippy. Ooh, that's a good one. Clean. Yeah. 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 I usually use
0: Chrome, though. Yeah. Favorite video conferencing suite? Like Zoom? Could <laughs> be Zoom. Be.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, I, yeah, I'm actually really... Pleased with Zoom. I've been watching the evolution of it over the over the year and in uh things not directly related to my my job, like watching how they've enhanced the use of breakout rooms. Um they're like they're like really thinking and I think doing doing great work. Uh so keep it up on the breakout rooms, guys.
0: Yeah, they're doing a good job with that. Uh VR or AR? Hmm.
1: I don't know yet,
0: you know? Okay.
1: <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen a, a little of both that were like, oh, this is really amazing. And others like, boy, we got work to do.
0: We're all waiting for the Apple headset. They're the go. next reality. Uh cable or streaming? Streaming.
1: Don't even have cable.
0: Neither do I. Uh who inspires you most? Wow. What inspires me most?
1: Um, you know, these days I I have to say I'm, I'm most inspired by this, this network of climate justice activists who are, who have realized a problem out in the world and are just going after it with, with their full heart and, um, inspiring so many people to, to get involved with it, you know? So Uh, you know, (laughs) I I can't even name names. You know, there's, there's, there's too many, but that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's what's really inspiring me right now. And, and, uh, and indeed it it kind of underpins, you know, the work that I do at OpenCourseWare too, like trying to, trying to produce that better world.
0: Favorite jazz group.
1: Oh, (laughs) you know, um, I return again and again to the Thelonious Monk quartet with uh, Charlie Rouse on saxophone and uh, several other rhythm sections, but that's that and uh, Ornette Coleman's classic quartet are probably my my two standbys.
0: Okay, so this is the last one now. This may be more difficult than that one. Favorite drummer?
1: That is even more hard. (laughs) Um, the older I get, the more I, I, uh, I love Max Roach, you know, that, that he kept evolving throughout his life. Uh, um, and that's, that's really inspiring to me as a, as a, a more mature adult here.
0: Well, that pretty much wraps it up for what we had to ask you today. Um, Kurt, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to spend time with us on our podcast and chat about MIT open Courseware. Uh, I was so thrilled to meet you at the conference that you mentioned. I believe it was open ed and, uh, just to be able to follow up with you about research and then follow up to talk about the platform that you work on that we're, that we all use and engage with. It's a real pleasure.
1: Yeah. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation, Chris and Eric. Thank you for, for doing this. You're uh, doing great things with this podcast and, uh, it's it's been an honor.
2: Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you very much. And so, uh, the anniversary for OCW is uh, April fourth.
1: That's that's correct. That falls on a Sunday this year. Um, we'll be doing a thing. It hasn't been quite firmed up in the schedule yet. Sometime the first week of April, we'll be uh, open to the public. Um, people can learn about it by coming to the website or subscribing to our newsletter or. Any, any number of social media feeds that we're out on before we get the word out.
0: You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTechExamined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.
2: And I'm Chris Hong, the audio producer for EdTech Examined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C H R I S H O A N G.ca.